Hello and welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling, and I'll be with you today as we answer the question, why multifamily? Hello again, everyone. This is Pat. Today, we're going to be answering the question, why invest in multifamily real estate? We believe commercial real estate deserves a place in your portfolio. Why invest in multifamily real estate? We believe that commercial real estate deserves a place in your portfolio. And we want to take a look at some of the factors that make that the case. We're going to do that by looking at a handful of different factors. For example, we want to take a look at the basic understanding of why multifamily is such a valuable asset. We also want to understand this supply-demand imbalance that we've talked about several different times. In particular, where those tenants come from and why supply is effectively stagnant. So let's go ahead and dive in. What's the reason we think you should at least start by looking at multifamily? You have a lot of choices out there. You can invest in the industrial commercial space. You can invest in office, in retail, in hospitality in multifamily. Why look at multifamily? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, we like the idea that commercial real estate in general and multifamily in particular is a hard asset. We're not talking about a paper investment. We're, talking, we're not talking about an investment in future cash flows on some entity. We're talking about actually owning something tangible. You can go and physically touch these assets that you invest in, which actually brings up a really good point. When we talk about investing in multifamily real estate, we're not talking about buying shares in a REIT or buying a mortgage that is secured against a multifamily property. We're actually talking about going on title and buying a piece of multifamily real estate. And you can do that a number of different ways. You can do that by making an investment yourself and buying, for example, a fourplex, and then you're actually on title. Again, you might do it through an LLC, and we'll talk about that in one of our other podcasts. Or you may do that by investing with a firm like Mara Poling, and we'll go out and purchase a 200-unit complex, and again, you'll be a member of the LLC that we manage that owns that particular asset. Like we said, we like the idea that these are hard assets, the other factor that we like about it is when you really start to look at and think about volatility in the cycle, in the economic cycle, and it is a cycle, it's going to happen. We are going to have recessions. You've heard us talk about that before. What kinds of investments do you want to be in? Do you want to be invested in luxury products that the average Joe and Jane are going to potentially cut back on? So, for example... Their cable TV package goes from the $250 a month. I've got every uh, component and channel that I could possibly think of. And then they cut back to the $125 or the $100 or the $75 package. Is that a place you want to be invested? Uh, do you want to be invested in, for example, restaurants or other activities that people might uh, reduce the amount of involvement? Or do we want to be invested in a really basic uh, need that everybody has, and that is food and shelter. So we think multifamily real estate is a really good investment simply from that standpoint, that it's a hard asset and that it's in that category of food and shelter. At its core, the biggest reason we like multifamily is this, 
there is a supply-demand imbalance. Everything in the economy, in this capitalistic economy that we all live in and participate in, is driven by those simple supply-demand models. You don't need to be a graduate student in economics to understand how supply and demand works. If we have demand for a product and the supply increases, so more of that product is created, then the price is going to go down because people have more choices. If we have a amount of demand for a product and the amount of supply decreases, then there is fewer available units to support that demand, the price will go up. And the same is true if demand changes. A fairly simple model that I think intuitively everyone understands, and as I said, if you've got a degree in economics, you understand it in some uh, very complex way, everybody gets the basic idea behind it. There is a supply-demand imbalance in multifamily. There is a shortage of units today, and we believe, and the demographics back it up, that that imbalance is going to continue not just for a few years, not just for five years, but we believe there's a 10, 15, potentially even 20-year cycle in which we're going to have this imbalance, in particular in the market that we focus on, which is that Class B space. And if you don't remember that, you can go back and take a listen to some of the other podcasts where we've talked a little more in detail about Class B as opposed to Class A and Class C is the space that we think makes the most sense to be in. What we have is this significant demand in the Class B space and a relatively uh, fixed or finite amount of supply. So let's talk about where that demand comes from. We think there are four specific areas that drive demand in the multifamily space. The demographics of baby boomers and echo boomers, population growth, and then the home ownership rate in the United States. So let's take a look at each of those in a little bit of detail. Baby boomers. Everybody understands who the baby boomers are, right? We had this uh, very challenging situation with uh, World War II. Uh, the greatest generation rose up and took on that challenge, and then they all came home, right? And so it's 1945, the beginning of 1946. We have this influx of men returning from the war and women that have been in the workforce and we've got all these marriages, and lo and behold, we start seeing children born of that. This huge boom in the birth rate in the United States, which continues into the early 60s, and those are the baby boomers, about 80 million strong, and those 80 million baby boomers have been impacting the economy since the day that they were born. Uh, like a bulge in a snake, they have moved through the economy as children, as adolescents, as teens, uh, as college students, as young adults, so on and so on, and now they are becoming retirees. So one of the things that we look at is what's the retiree rate of rental versus home ownership, and is that different for baby boomers? The answer is it's not. Baby boomers appear to be renting and owning in roughly the same percentage as prior generations. Well, if that's the case, then why is this pushing demand? Well, the reason is this. There are simply more of them. Rental demand in uh, retirees is somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 
there's a little bit of volatility in there over time, but we're just going to use those, those numbers. That gives you a pretty good idea. Well, if we have 40 or 50 million individuals in the retirement cohort and we're at 20%, then we're going to see roughly 10 million rental households from that retiree group. If we've got 80 million in that group and we're at that same 26, uh, pardon me, 20%, then we're going to see 16 million rental households, an increase of 6 million rental households, not because they're renting in greater percentages, simply because there are larger numbers. So we have an increase in demand in the rental space because boomers are simply a large group. The next group we want to talk about are echo boomers. And that's a term that you may or may not be familiar with. It's a term simply we use. Everybody talks about millennials and Gen X and Gen Y, and I must confess I get confused about which of those is which and all the rest of it. Again, grab a chart that shows birth rates in the United States, and what you'll see is this big boom from the baby boomers and then a decline, and then you start to see an increase again. Now, this increase is slightly smaller than the baby boomers, it occurs, though, over a longer period of time. And what these are is these are the children and grandchildren of the baby boomers. It's the echo of the baby boom. And that group is, again, about 80 million strong. So if you think about that, in the United States, we have 320 million people, give or take. 80 million are baby boomers. 80 million are echo boomers. That's half of the population bunched together in two tight groups. Now, echo boomers are renting at a slightly higher rate than prior groups that are that age for a couple reasons. Uh, they have delayed uh, household form formation, they've delayed marriage, they've delayed the uh, move towards having families, and they are burdened in many instances with financial responsibilities that baby boomers didn't have, in particular student loan debt. And for that reason, echo boomers, some still living at home, Many on their own, but not necessarily sold on this uh, version of the American dream where they own a home. As I said, not only are they delaying some of those items uh, on that checklist, and do they have some financial challenges potentially that keep them from owning a home. One thing to keep in mind is this group were adolescents and young adults during the 2007-2008 Great Recession. They saw family, friends lose their homes. They are not as inclined as a group, according to surveys, to be interested in home ownership because they see risks associated with it. So we've got a large group of baby boomers, which is pushing on demand, and we have this group of echo boomers that's not only large, but they're also renting in a greater percentage than prior generations. And to that we add just basic population growth in the United States. That population growth fits into two categories. Over time, we're going to see a fairly substantial amount of growth. The Census Department has forecasts they have, and like any other forecast, we know that that forecast is wrong. We just don't know if it's high or if it's low. For us, we simply use that forecast as a baseline to give us an idea of what the future looks like. And over the next 30 years, we're seeing a substantial growth in the population in the United States. We go from 320 to 350 to 380 to 400, uh, you know, maybe 420, 450, something in that particular range. A lot of growth in the United States. 
It's broken out, however, into two categories. One is baseline growth of the existing population that's here, and the other is immigration. When we look at that on a macro basis, right, all the population growth, it's clear that as we have population growth, we will have more demand across all the classes of multifamily real estate. And again, we like class B, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we get to the supply side of the equation. But we also want to look at those two components. So the base population growth in the United States, there absolutely is growth. It is relatively tepid, and the reason for that is this, is birth rates, while higher than mortality rates in the United States, are not significantly higher. So we see that base population grow, but only by a few million, maybe 10 million, maybe 20 million, something in that range, over this long period of time. That will certainly increase the number of rental households that we have it will do so modestly. So where does this demand come? It comes from immigration. And that has been true every single forecast you go look at. So if you look at this forecast, which runs from current day out, as I said, roughly 30 years or so, if you go back and look at one from the 70s, it would look the same. If you go back and look at one from the 50s or the 20s or the turn of the century, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, you would see that same dynamic. The United States growth rates have always been tied to immigration. That's been a significant component of it. Now, we care about that for two different reasons. One is we simply get some raw number growth, which, as we said, drives demand. In addition to that, we care about that because the American dream that we referenced a moment ago is an American phenomena across the globe Homeownership is not nearly as significant an issue as it is here in the United States. And for that reason, when individuals and families immigrate to the United States, they are significantly less likely to own a home during the first generation of their being here in the States. So I'll give you an example. So we have a family that moves to the United States from Western Europe. When they get here that family is 40% likely to buy a home and 60% likely to rent. That's effectively inverted from the base population, which is 60% likely to own a home and 40% likely to rent. And that 40% home ownership, 60% rental dynamic effectively stays in place through the entire first generation, so for 20 or 25 years. And once that family is fully assimilated and essentially their second generation, so the individuals that were born here in the States and that have grown up envisioning that American dream as part of their future, do we see that that family then begins to own a home in a 60% uh, ratio and rent in a 40% ratio. So if we look at that growth, it's not only substantial, it is highly focused on rental demand as opposed to housing demand from an ownership standpoint. So we've got boomers that are causing this big bulge to move through the uh, rental demand equation. We have echo boomers that are uh, delaying home ownership and in some instances not inclined to want to own homes. We have population growth, which is gr driving demand, and that population growth is skewed more towards the rental demand side than it is towards the home ownership side. 
And then we have the final component, which is just the general home ownership rate in the United States. For many years, uh, society, and in particular the federal government, have believed, and generally uh, accurately believed, that home ownership was good for the country. The more people that own homes, there were economic values associated with it in terms of uh, money that would be spent and invested in improving those homes, that home ownership increased the safety and security and the quality of life in neighborhoods uh, because individuals had a greater care and concern uh, for their properties because they owned them as opposed to renting them. Uh, and everybody thought that's a good idea. Unfortunately, that got turned into we should do whatever we can to let as many people as possible own homes. And that bubble that was created out of that led in part to some of the problems we had in the late 2000s. During that period of time, home ownership rates went from the baseline low to mid-60s number they had been to almost 70%. And it was at that peak that the bubble burst. We then began a steady decline in home ownership back to where we are today at that historical rate. And we're potentially actually moving even lower. There are many forecasts that show us going down into the 60% range and possibly even into the high 50s. All right, why do we care about that? Well, the reason we care about that is this, is every 1% movement in home ownership, so as we went from 70 to 69, creates over 1 million new rental households. And so we look at that and we've had a decline from 70% down to roughly 63%. It's been moving around a little bit, goes up a half point, down a half point. We're basically at around 63% right now. So we have seen significantly north of 7 million new rental households created basically in the last 10 years, 700,000 a year. So I want you to just keep that number in mind as we move to the supply side of the equation here. So let's summarize demand. We have a significant number of baby boomers moving through this process, and they are renting at the same rates as their prior uh, uh, generations. Uh, but we're looking at something in the neighborhood of an additional 6 million units needed over time to be able to accommodate baby boomers. Echo boomers are not only a large group, so we have that similar effect to baby boomers, but they are also renting in larger percentages. So that provides us with additional demand, uh, again, in the millions of, of uh, units. We have population growth, which is skewed towards rental demand as opposed to home ownership. That provides us with a significant number of additional units required. Uh, it could be as many as 800,000 uh, to a million units a year. Uh, and then we have this decline overall in home ownership. When you add it all up, we believe that that gives you a number that is in the neighborhood of a million or more units a year over this long period of time. Again, not five years, not 10 years, but over what we think could be a 20-year cycle. Now, the forecast that you'll see from many in the government and elsewhere will use a number more in the maybe 400,000 range. We don't see anything wrong with using that number. That's just fine. Uh, we think the number's higher than that. There's absolutely a significant amount of demand in the multifamily space. 
As we said a moment ago, demand is half the equation, supply is the other equation. So if we've got all this demand, why don't we just go build more units? That seems like a pretty obvious thing to do. If there was a substantial amount of demand, for example, for bottled water, wouldn't we have a lot of new companies that would be formed to manufacture and produce bottled water? And we would see supply increase, and that supply would increase in relation to the demand, and we would get back to some normalized price per unit. Isn't that the way capitalism is supposed to work? You bet that's the way it's supposed to work. And for some classes of multifamily, that is what's happening. So when we look at the supply side of the equation, we have to look at a couple of factors. One of the factors we need to look at is the cost of new development. I'll give you an example. In the markets that we are active in, and again, we're in that Class B space, we can purchase uh, properties for somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars per unit, right? So that's how much we'll pay to buy a, a one or a two bedroom uh, apartment unit. New development in that same geography is not fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. It's in the neighborhood of ninety, a hundred thousand dollars or more. Well, if you think about that, to get the same return on your investment. If you had to spend $100,000 to buy a unit, you have to charge more rent than we have to charge at sixty dollars or even $70,000 to make the same return. How can you be competitive in a marketplace when you have to charge more rent? That really gives us an advantage from having existing inventory. And this is what's happened. Instead of those developers spending $100,000 to build that new unit, they have instead spent $130,000 or $150,000, and they've built a Class A unit. And that Class A unit does, in fact, provide them the ability to make the return on investment that they need to make for having put that $150,000 into that unit's development. What that means is if we look at the new development that has gone on in the United States over the last few years, it is highly focused on the Class A space. There simply isn't a way to go build Class B units that can be competitive for the cost based on the cost of new development. Numerically, over the last few years, we've seen a significant amount of development, something in the neighborhood of uh, 250, 275, 300,000 units. There are more units than that started every year. In other words, permits pulled on them. But you want to look at completions, not unit starts, because it doesn't really matter how many units get started. It matters how many get completed that are available for tenants to lease. So we've had a large amount of new development. Actually, it's the largest amount we've seen in the last 25 years. So somewhere around 300,000 highly focused in the Class A space. So that's one of the things I'd ask you to keep in mind uh, as we look at all of this. Another component that we want to look at is absorption. And absorption is a fancy word for simply saying, how long does it take new units to get filled up, right? So if you build a 100-unit complex, uh, the day you finish constructing it, do you have all 100 units leased? Does it take you six months? Does it take you a year, a year and a half, two years, three years, five years? How long does that take? Generally speaking, in a market, if you have 24 months or shorter, if that's the absorption period, 
that's a pretty healthy market. And that's about where the markets are that we invest in. Absorption is one of the factors that we look at, and we would encourage you to take a look at that as well because it helps you understand the supply side of the demand uh, supply balance. Absorption at 24 months or less, and again, remember, that's for Class A units effectively because that's what's being constructed. Another component that we need to look at is deconstruction. Deconstruction actually removes units from supply. So we don't include it in the demand side of the equation. We include it in the supply side of the, of the conversation here. We're building, say, let's say 300,000 units. That's a good number. Might be a little more than that. Uh, and I'm, by a little more, I mean a little more, like five or 10,000. Uh, so we might be in that 300,000 range. Uh, that 300,000 is being absorbed relatively quickly, which means that we don't have excess units sitting around. And then we have a deconstruction component. Now, this is not something that's tracked very well because it's hard to track. There are lots of reasons that units go out of service. Um, one is the land that those units sit on is more valuable for some other purpose. This is not something that happens with a Class A property or a Class B or even a Class C. We've talked previously about there being a D class. This is really where deconstruction tends to happen, uh, at least this kind of deconstruction. You have a, a piece of land that itself is more valuable than the improvement and the cash flow that that improvement can generate. So someone will buy it, scrape it, and then they'll build you know, a, a, a CVS pharmacy or they'll build... Uh, a small condominium complex where they'll sell those units, or they build a parking structure if it's in an urban environment. Who knows what they'll do with it, but they'll do something other than a multifamily use. The other type of deconstruction that we see that's uh, very common is, again, uh, a Class D kind of property, or maybe a Class C. That property is purchased because the land is valuable. It's scraped. But what's constructed there is new multifamily units, right? And again, new multifamily units is most likely going to be a Class A development. So you've scraped a Class B or maybe even a Class C, and you've rebuilt it with a Class A. Given the density levels, right, that, we're, that we are used to, it is likely that you are probably rebuilding the same number of units or maybe slightly fewer units. But think about that for a minute. That means that we have, for example, 200 units that are in the supply. We take those 200 out and we replace them at best with another 200. It's possible we actually replace them with fewer units. And those 200 units we're building, they're included in the 300,000 that we've built across the country. So we're actually not increasing supply by doing that. Let's summarize that. So we have Supply in the, pro in the uh, country today, which, by the way, that supply is less than what the demand is right now, so we already have an imbalance to start with. And as we look to the future, we have development costs that are causing the new development to be focused on Class A units, not on Class B. We have absorption at a healthy rate, meaning that we don't have excess units sitting around, and we're taking units out of the supply. And how many we take out of supply is a number that we could certainly debate. Some argue that it's as many as 100,000 units a year. Others will say it's 75,000 units. 
For our purposes here, let's say it's a modest number. Let's say it's 50,000 units a year. Let's go back now and look at our entire supply-demand equation. We have demand that is growing and that is at least something in the neighborhood of 400,000 units a year, if not as many as a million, as our numbers tend to show. But let's use the 400,000 number. And again, that comes from baby boomers, echo boomers, population growth, and decline in home ownership. And we are constructing something in the neighborhood of 300,000 new units that are being absorbed very quickly. Those units are effectively almost all being built in the Class A space, and that number is then being shrunk by the number of deconstructed units, which is 50, 75, 100,000. So you've got demand for 400,000 new units, and we have supply that's being increased at the rate of about 250,000 new units. Well, you can see right there, annually we have a delta, an imbalance of 150,000 units. That's on top of something in the neighborhood of a million to three million units right now that we are short in the United States. So if you want to know why rents continue to move up, and why, why there is demand in the investor space for multifamily, it is because of this supply-demand imbalance that exists in the multifamily marketplace. In other environments, right, in other pieces of the economy, if you had this kind of a supply-demand imbalance, I think two things would be happening, and you tell me if you agree or not. One, you would see an influx of capital into the supply side of the equation. People would want to go in and develop new supply. Like I said, if, if you were in the bottled water business and this was occurring, people would want to go open up plants to bottle water and sell it. And that's certainly happening here in multifamily, but again, it's all happening in the Class A space. So for Class B, which is where an awful lot of this demand is focused, we aren't seeing any new supply being able to be developed. The other thing that you would see occurring is uh, you would see a lot of investor interest, right? If, if I was able to tell you that, hey, uh, demand for bottled water is going to explode and there isn't going to be any way to uh, manufacture or bottle enough new water, you would say, great, how can I get in on this? Where can I invest in the bottled water industry? Uh, so same scenario here. And that is why we have seen such interest in multifamily and in other portions of the economy, when we see that happen, uh, it's a curve, right? So we see a lot of interest, and then we get to a point where that interest balances out, right? Where the amount of investors that want to get into that space uh, and the amount of supply that's available in terms of investment gets to some level of equilibrium. We are not experiencing that in multifamily. We are on a long-term curve of growth. Now, does that mean that we won't see some fluctuation? Of course not, because underlying all that, we have the business cycle taking place, and there will be recessions, and those recessions will create investment opportunities where we can acquire properties for a lower price, a higher cap rate than what we currently acquire them for, and we certainly want to be able to take advantage of all of that. The answer to the question, why multifamily? Really twofold. It's a good asset class because it's a hard, tangible asset. It's not paper investment. 
Uh, it has a great return and all the other things that we've talked about in other places, but you can go taste it and touch it and look at it. It's, it's valuable from that standpoint. And it's food and shelter. It's not the kind of investment that people are going to cut back on when tough times arrive as we go through a recession in the business cycle, which we will at some point in time. The other reason is there is an existing supply-demand imbalance. It is going to continue for some extended period of time, certainly long enough to uh, benefit over the next five years. We believe 10 years, even 15 years, if not longer, uh, unless we get to a point where existing units are trading for the same cost as new development. And I would be completely happy if our units that we buy for $50,000 got to the point where they were worth 100000 or 110000 They will eventually get there, and by the time they get there, new development costs in our space are going to be $150,000 per unit. Uh, so there's always, we believe, going to be this lag, and if there isn't, it will mean that our investments have paid off extremely well, which we would think would be a, a very good thing. There you have it. We'd love to have you go visit our website. Go to the Learning Center at marapoling.com. That's M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And there you will find all sorts of great information. You'll see a section on why multifamily. You can uh, watch a video that we have there. You can download our white paper. Uh, we have some webinars coming up that touch on these subjects. We will have some uh, additional podcasts that go into a few of these items in even a little more detail. Uh, we absolutely want you to benefit from all of this, whether you're interested in, in investing in multifamily the way that we do it, right, 100, 200, 300 unit investments, or if you're simply looking to go buy a fourplex on your own. All of this interest around why multifamily applies to that entire broad spectrum. So with that, we thank you for joining us today. I look forward to seeing you on our next podcast of multifamily real estate investing presented by Mara Poling.